Welcome to the Pro Tour Talk with Steve Dodge. I'm Steve Dodge. Today is August 29th, 2018, and we have got a great show for you today. In addition to going over the MVP Open and who won the men's side and the women's side, we will talk about who won the Tour Points Championship. We'll do our Tip of the Tuft. We'll do our Podcast of the Week. And our interview this week is with Eric Oakley, who was adamantly for making the basket smaller and we will see where he stands right now a few days no actually a week after our conversation and our round table pretty interesting stuff stay tuned let's do a quick talk about the women's side of the MVP open after the first round with a couple of birdies well placed at the end of the round Sarah Hokum and Paige Pierce had a two-stroke lead over Rebecca Cox, Paige Bjorkus, and Katrina Allen. Lisa Fakus was one behind them. There were six women within three strokes. It was anybody's battle. In the second round, Sarah Hokum beat Paige Pierce by nine strokes. Every other hole gaining a stroke. Not only that, but every other hole gaining a stroke on the current champion at this course. Sarah Hokum put it down and kept it down. Another player that did very well in round two was Paige Bjorkus. It feels a lot like Paige has got a taste for victory. It's got to be coming. She's been so close so often this season, and with her new commitment to touring, I think her first very big victory is not that far away. Keep an eye on Paige Bjorkus. But the MVP Open was Sarah's day. In the second round, Sarah carded seven birdies with three bogeys. In the third round, Sarah carded six birdies and only had one blemish on her card, shooting the tournament hot round at five under. Holly Finley also shot five under. Kudos to her in that third round as well. So when Sarah needed to put the hammer down and say, this tournament is mine, she did so, starting with a crazy impressive birdie on the tunnel shot with OB right and left, hole six. Well done, Sarah Hokum, and best of luck at Worlds. You are the, M- you are the inaugural MVP Open champion. On the men's side of the MVP Open, I'm not sure that we can truly grasp what just happened. James Conrad went into the final round two strokes behind Paul McBeth and three strokes behind Ricky Wysocki. And then he won. James Conrad might have just flipped the script in the upper echelons of MPO Disc Golf. It was a foregone conclusion before that final round started that either Ricky or Paul would win the tournament. The other players were there as window dressing, just to round out the cart. But James Conrad demonstrated, no, we can win too. We can catch the top two players in the world, pass them, and defeat them. 
James Conrad played a steady, consistent, aggressive game. He demonstrated it on hole 14 in the final round. He had about a 30-footer for birdie, looking straight at the water. Paul Macbeth was ready to card the birdie and gain a stroke. James Conrad decided, just like he'd done all tournament, that he would go for it. His disc glanced off the cage, skipped up, and flew into the pond behind for a two-stroke swing. His lead was down to one with four holes left. James Conrad stepped up to hole 15 and piped it, putting the disc within five feet. Park job. Game mine. Paul Macbeth would make a valiant effort, his final 80-footer for the tie, sailing just right. So just one more little thing about the MVP Open. We have had a tremendous season of growth this year on the Pro Tour. Many, many events have stepped up. We've had brand new events do amazing jobs and show us the kinds of things that need to happen at all of the events. The MVP Open genuinely felt like a celebration. It was fun, it was family, it was festivities, uh, and MVP made sure that all of the event happened back on the farm, right where it all belongs, so everybody can go there and stay there and just be. It was a phenomenal thing to behold. And as James Conrad and Paul Macbeth came up the green, came up to the green on hole 18, and the thousand plus people in the crowd were cheering and excited and quiet and anticipatory, there was a genuine sense that something in disc golf had shifted. I got that sense and it gave me goosebumps and the action on the field, the action on the course, didn't matter. We were all there celebrating the best that disc golf has to offer. We were all together. It, it was a genuinely unifying experience and I'm so, so happy to have been able to be a small part of it. Thank you to everybody that came out Thank you to the 5,000 plus of you that watched online as that final putt hit. We turned a corner and there's nothing but sunlight beyond. I don't think I'm speaking hyperbolically. This felt real. We're going to start a new feature on the podcast. Here's to hoping that I remember to do it every week. It's called Tip of the Tuft, and I'm going to be giving it out to someone who did something spectacular or who gave beyond what could be expected or did something that was super nice or something along those lines. And our very first recipient of the Tip of the Tuft award is Tea Time Disc Golf. These guys came up to the MVP Open on a shoestring budget. I would go ahead and say on a frayed shoestring budget. And they put together some fantastic videos. They were also open to saying, yes, 
we don't need to cover MPO1 or MPO2 or MPO3. We'll cover whatever card is available after that. And I love it when life works out because in round two, it just so happened that we all decided that they should cover the Ricky Wysocki card at the MVP Open. Ricky was in, I believe, 39th place or something like that. And he would promptly go out and shoot a 46, a 13 down on a very difficult Maple Hill Gold course. The fun thing is debating whether or not this is a better round than Paul McBeth's 45 from 2014, I think, when he shot 14 down. Oh, yeah, I think it was a 14 down. And people have argued that it was the best round ever. Ricky went out and shot a 46, one stroke worse on a course that plays two strokes worse. He did it by getting an ace on hole eight. That's the difference. So, which round was better, the 46 on this year's course or the 45 from five years ago? Either way, we get to watch the 46 in perpetuity thanks to the efforts of Tea Time Disc Golf. A tip of the tuft, gentlemen. You did a great job. So we are now joined by Eric Oakley. Uh, Eric, thank you very much, first of all, for participating in the basket discussion that we had last week. And thank you also for this follow-up phone call, and let's uh, try to figure out where we want to take this. Thank you, Steve. Excited to be here. So... Uh, I've had some revelations uh, over the past week or so. It's fun uh, that we had this conversation and got so many different points of view from from the, the touring pro community. Uh, let's just start by recapping your position at the conversation that we had, uh, I think it was last Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I am very much in favor of finding a way to challenge uh, the top professional players a little bit more. And and when the topic of smaller baskets came up, I thought it was a good place uh, to go, but it, you know, there might not be the place for us to go uh, after the conversation. But I think that uh, we should be rewarding uh, good approaches. We should be awarding great drives. We should be awarding these types of shots more. Where in the in the game where it is now, it's it's not as it's not there as much. Um, we're not having as much separation on the green um, as I think we would like. So that was that was where my stance was. That well, how do we do that? Maybe a smaller target is the way. So yeah. So and one thing that I did hear in that conversation was uh, if people uh, hit a, a putt dead center uh, and then another person hits a putt and it dribbles in, you know, should those be the same? And uh, and obviously there's going to be some variance. If, it, if you do a swish in basketball, it counts as two points. And if you uh, hit it off the bank backboard and it goes off one rim and then off the other and then goes in, it still counts as two points. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as it gets in, it doesn't matter how. 
Um, and and the person that does the swish consistently is obviously going to get a higher percentage than the person that's going off the bank mm-hmm. backwards and the rim. Oh. The uh, I think it's important to point out the logic, uh, and the, and and this is the thing that that hammers at home for me: the logic of the reason why a basket should be smaller. Uh, when when Steady Ed designed the basket, uh, he was. He was basically playing catch in his garage with an ultimate disc. Yeah, and forty the, pretty big, you know. Those are definitely bigger than what we're yeah, doing that, now. Absolutely, yeah. He was playing catch with an ultimate disc, and that that is much bigger than a current golf disc, especially a putter, uh, which will almost always be the minimum dimension that's possible. And uh, a putter is going to be about two-thirds the size of an ultimate disc. And therefore, logically, it would make sense to shrink our basket down by two-thirds that size, presuming that the PDGA doesn't change the minimum dimension of golf discs anytime soon. Yeah. So that's the logic of it. And that's probably the reason that putting seems relatively easy for the top pros. There's not a lot of variation inside circle one. You're looking at uh, you're looking at anywhere from nine, 88 to 93% is where the, the vast majority, probably you know, one standard deviation of all of the top players sit. Mm-hmm. So the real the real statistic for disc golf is actually circle one in regulation. If you're giving yourself more birdie opportunities, you're going to win because yeah. basically everybody's hitting 90% of those putts. Mm-hmm. So you and I had a conversation earlier this morning, and while I understand the logical side of changing the basket size, um, my my thinking on this has shifted. And based on the way you started this conversation, it feels like your thinking on this might have shifted also. Is is that the case? I I think so. Um, You know, the big topic that came up out of, that conversation uh, with all those pros was course design. Course design can be the the could pave the way for putting to be a little bit more valued. Um, because when you, if the green is a little bit more difficult to access, getting a putt for a birdie shows that the player did something exceptional. Um, and they did, or not necessarily exceptional, but they did something that they were supposed to do, and they gave themselves a great opportunity to to score. Um, so with that course design, you allow ourselves to, you know, to get better courses and, and separate the scores um, just by moving the basket, adding some obstacles near the green or. Uh, on the way to the green that, you know, challenge us as players to, you know, to throw the best shots and throw, uh, to be the best players on the weekend to prove our, to prove our work. So course design, where making it, uh, making it more difficult to get right next to the basket, um, and putting obstacles, uh, whether they be, trees or shrubbery uh, near baskets so that, for example, if there's a basket, if there's a, uh, a shrubbery on the left side of the basket, you you want to go to the right side of the basket. 
Mm-hmm. Whole whole so, six comes to mind uh, at Maple Hill a lot uh, in this conversation because you can be, you know, you can throw a great drive to circle one right now and be in those trees just left of the green, and yeah. you don't have a putt. Was was the shot the person threw a really good shot? Well, it was a pretty good shot to get all the way down there to be in bounds and to give themselves an opportunity, yes. But there's now having – they didn't land and they didn't end up in a ideal enough spot to have a putt. So the shot was good, but not good enough for what the hole was asking. And um, and I think that that's a great example of you know where our conversation went earlier. So that guy who's sitting in the in the trees, uh, nine meters from the basket, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got he's surrounded by trees. Is he on the green? Is he really putting? I I would call him off the fairway in my in my overall opinion. Yes, he is inside circle one, but what is being asked of him is not a putt. It's not a, all right, cool, either he's straddling or he has, has a normal stance putt. He is not um, in that best, place. Best best case scenario, he has an obstructed putt. But in reality, he has a, a, a pitching a wedge as they were for golf. He has a wedge yes. shot. Yeah. Um, it's yes. interesting because that is a bunker. I'm sorry, say that again? He's near the basket, but he'd be in what would be, I would call, a disc golf bunker. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's, a, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting place to go where the 10-meter circle defines whether or not we can fall forward. But it feels like what should define it is actually the green, not mm-hmm. the 10-meter circle. And there are going to be places where you're in – Especially Maple Hill, you can you can easily be within ten meters of a of a basket and be in thick woods, and uh, and and getting out of there and falling forward isn't. I mean, you don't you're pitching. You don't you're yeah. You don't really have a putt. Um, now so, I, but, I do kind of like that if you're inside of ten meters still and inside the circle, not being able to fall forward because that could cause some. Issues where if if the like as our conversation goes, where it's like, well, you're not on the green, but you can be 15 feet away. Now that doesn't mean you get to jump putt from 15 feet. I feel like that we should still have some standard of of that of that number, so that you know, because there because think, the thing about courses that we do have. <laughs> um, obstruction, because then that would cause some issues of like, wow, that guy was able to jump putt from ten feet. Well, that was really easy. He basically dumped it, <laughs> so we don't want that. <laughs> well, he still has to have one foot on the ground. But I actually like what you. I actually like what you said there. If you're, it's possible to be inside the ten meter circle. To be, I'm going to go, go ahead and use the word technically not on the green because you're in woods, so you're you don't actually have a putt. Uh, but you still don't get to fall forward because you're inside 10 meters. Yeah. So it's a statistical clarification is what it would be. Exactly. Um, and, and I like that clarification a lot. Um, one other thing that came up in addition to course design in, our, in the conversation is the concept of maybe making it a 
I think you had said a 15-meter circle for circle one. Some other folks had said 20. Some some said 17. Um, in my mind, uh, I would make 30 meters the green. And, uh, and I have two reasons for that. But before I go there, I want you to talk about making the – why make the green – why make 10 meters bigger? So I think we're at a place in our sport where the skill has evolved. Players have gotten just significantly good at these putts. And um, the constant conversation about these baskets and the, the, the opening up circle one is to keep people from doing jump putts. And, yeah, I see that. But if you look at the the pro field and in that division, you'll see some players doing it and some players not. Um, like Ricky and Paul and even Eagle, they might not fall forward on a 45-footer or a 50-footer. But you might have, um, this is, you know, like a Ulibar, if you go watch his uh, third round at Maple Hill, he had a lot of, you know, just outside the circle, and he used his step putt because it's in the rules, and they're all really good step putts, and he made them. But he was he 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 played his strengths. So opening up that circle, what I think it does um, is it'll help the statistics of the circle one putting will be a little bit more on a realistic number of uh, comparison to golf, but it, it'd be a more realistic number for our own sport that. If it, it's kind of a disappointing number on the weekends that we even talk about as pros, that yeah, dude, I missed, dude, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent inside the circle, and that's a, that's a crazy thought that you know what sport <laughs> somebody a hundred percent in very very rarely. Um, so I think opening that uh, opening that distance out challenges us more as players that we need to be. You know, we have to expand our skills and be better. You can take foot, uh, football, American football as an example. They moved the field goal or the extra point back because it was boring and too easy. And yep. it was basically a useless play in the end for most players. And so in our sport, if we bring that out a little bit. We're going to be challenging ourselves. We're going to see a little bit more score separation because you know, players can't fall forward now, but they have to use, you have to maintain balance and uh, show their strength and balance and professionalism um, just a little so bit the, more. The argument against that, uh, which I think is basically a straw man, but the argument against that is, wait a minute, Eric, uh, if we're not making the basket smaller, and we're saying you can't jump putt out, you know, from 10 to 20 meters now, uh, that doesn't fix the problem of the 9-meter putt still being a gimme. It's basically a free throw. And five of the six people on that panel said free throws are boring. Um, if, I was going, if I was going to comment on the fact that free throws are boring, free throws are boring until they're missed. <laughs> so, like, uh, one or two free throws out of 10 are not boring. The rest of them are. Um, and if you're anywhere from 5 to 10 meters out, those putts are not are boring until they're missed. Yeah. Um, when James Conrad missed his putt on, on hole 14, 
to skip off the cage and then roll OB and give Paul McBeth a two-stroke swing, that was not a boring circle one putt. So, um, so, but the, that the 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 reason that that argument is a straw man is because you started this out with course design. Mm-hmm. Uh, using Maple Hill Hole One Gold as an example, we pushed that pin back 35, 40 feet, and the reason was because you could lay up at the mouth and you'd have a circle one putt for birdie. Now, mm-hmm. if you want the birdie, you either need to challenge the green and go in there, and you have a. If you go in there, you can give yourself a circle one putt, or you can stay outside the mouth and have a, a long circle two putt. So. Yeah. You, you have the option of which of those two you want to challenge to give yourself a look at birdie. And yeah. so to your point, it's course design is, is the key that's going to make this a success. Mm-hmm. And I, I think using both of these options where course, like course design, we expand the circle. Um, and then if we're still having this issue where we still feel like players are just too good inside of what would be our new circle one at 15, 17, 20 meters, 30 meters, whatever it is, uh, whatever we get to, and players are just so good, then we can go back to, okay, well, maybe the baskets need to be smaller. But then we can even go to a different conversation about baskets, that basket standards maybe need to go another level, and they need to improve because, you know, we, I think, um, with the discussions that you have with us um, uh, as the players, it seems like that's a constant conversation of, well, you know, the baskets were a little, were, were decent at so-and-so event. And, you know, how do we, how do we get a standard there? So I think that, you know, that's obviously we're in, that's three different conversations of, okay, course (laughs) is one. All right. Expanding the circle two and then basket standards is three, you know. And there's actually a fourth conversation, which you had mentioned earlier, which is obstacles on the green. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then regarding the baskets, uh, you you could easily just put a pipe or two on one side of a basket. And then if you are on that side of the, you know, just if you have two pipes going up from the top and bottom and and you're on that left side, then you absolutely have an obstructed putt because there's a pipe in the way, like physically on the basket. Think about Winter Bowl last year. They put those poles up. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that was talked about as um, weird and gimmicky. But having played it, um, I enjoyed it. I, I really did because, you know, part of my shot was I was going to throw a sidearm and bail safe and hit the hit the fence and give myself a 25-footer. Uh, unless I threw a really good sidearm and I would park it. But on that second shot, if I was over there, I knew that, all right, I'm I'm challenging those poles. You know, they could also help me and keep me right there, but they could also make this a really difficult um, conversion for birdie or par or whatever it would be. Um, and those might have been a little close for my taste, but I do like um, natural stuff near the green. now. I would like to avoid it being in a it getting to the point where, like I said, is gimmicky. That word comes up a lot. We don't want that yeah. to where every single green has obstruction everywhere. It's just chaos. Uh, um, <laughs> but you know, doing it on some specific holes where you're right, 
Yeah, you have to, you need to land, it's better to land to the left side of the basket. You need, if you, if you want that birdie look, you want a good, clean birdie look, get to the left side. And that challenges yeah. us as players to not just throw it close and like, cool, I'm in the circle, awesome, let's go make a birdie. And now it's like, all right, I need to make sure I release it, you know, and give it enough angle that it finishes and gets in front and finishes to the left side of the basket. I like that right. concept. And the and uh, good course designers are going to think about the shots that they are going to make players take, and they are going to think about prevailing winds as an obstacle on the green. They're going to think about trees. They're going to think about shrubberies. The USDGC example uh, is a, I think, is a conceptually perfect solution, but it points out that that disc golf is going to be aesthetically challenged. Mm-hmm. We don't want gimmicks. Um, yeah. For example, the Zuka Trust. Uh, yeah. The Zuka Trust has to look good. Otherwise, yeah. people are going to look at that and say, especially on like a Jonesboro where we use it as a triple mando, and they're just going to say that's gimmicky. But mm-hmm. In my opinion, the fact that it looks good uh, and has a, a quality brand name attached to it, and in, in that case, it's a safety issue. We're mm-hmm. defining your tee shot for safety. Um, not, we're not super challenging you with the triple mando, but we, we just want to start your shot going this direction. Uh, I think that works because it has a good aesthetic. Uh, trees and rock walls and ponds and wind also have a good aesthetic. But uh, it's, that's going to be the challenge of, of how we, and that goes to course design, of how we, yeah. how we put those obstacles on the green. I would love to, I would love to have a course design panel. Even, I mean, I know that, that, that obviously those take a little bit to work towards, but, you know, get some other top course designers involved in that conversation with some other top professionals who have played a bunch of courses. And then we bring that, we start uh, a line of conversations and questions together to see what the, the right solutions are, you know, talk about the USDGC and, and stuff like that. I think it would be really cool. Uh, the PDGA uh clearly has at least one if not two course design groups already uh, okay. that, that talk about this type of thing so so this exists uh it's just well, a matter maybe, of what uh, talk to them about making that a little more public uh was, yeah and having and having those conversations be uh, transparent and out there and the more voices, the better. That's how I how I always view things. If anybody ever has uh, a comment or a criticism, I absolutely want to hear it because it's the way that we improve. Definitely. So the, the last the last two things that I'd like to touch on in this conversation, and then I can let you uh, do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you had talked about going out to I think fifteen or twenty meters for the the um, the, the falling forward putt being not allowed. I personally would like to see that go to 30 meters, about 100 feet. And the reason for that is is twofold. Number one, I think it, it makes shots inside 100 feet different, and I think they should be different because I think that should be what our putting green is. Um, and the, the other thing that it does, it defines the putting green as 100 meters, having a radius of 100, 100 feet. I'm sorry, having a radius of 100 feet. And then if somebody can drive and get a shot within 100 feet, or I should say if that's the expectation that you would get a shot within 100 feet, 
then that means your the par on that should be a three. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if if the average touring pro throws uh, 475 feet, uh, then if you have a 575 foot hole, um, or maybe 550 because they might not be 100 percent accurate at that distance, uh, that should be a par three because mm-hmm. they can get within 100 feet of that basket. And it helps us think about the game in a, in a way that's a little more similar to golf, which isn't necessarily the goal, but I think it's it's valid because that already exists and and that's uh, that's a way that people think about it. So, in my opinion, if we expand the green to 30 meters, number one, uh, the putting becomes a a unique skill in disc golf where it's it's a stand and throw. You got a little a little Annie S like Ron Russell used to do it. Or you could yep. do a, a, a straddle, a straddle hyzer putt like Ricky or, or Steve Brinstrom might do it. Um, but you can't fall forward. And then it also helps us define what par is, which is another very big topic in disc golf. So I'd love to hear your take on that, and then I'll let you wrap things up if you'd like. Cool. Um, so with with expanding it out to that hundred feet, I I like the idea. Um, quite a bit and I feel like we're we're leaving ourselves in that place where we have to have an exact number because the conversation like uh, Richard brought up um, uh, at the basket talk is well you know they were talking about making smaller targets on easier holes what if the falling forward and this is just this this just popped into my head is what if the falling forward was different depending on the hole because take hole 10 uh, at Maple Hill, as an example, is if you land 60 feet away on that uphill uh, on that uphill throw, and you can't finish forward, that's a that's a pretty difficult approach. And you're but you're considered on the green in the middle of the fairway. Um, right. So there some holes. I think it could it, it could vary, and that's just a, obviously this is stuff that would. Um, be great to continue to think about for the future of well, is 30 meters the number? Um, because there are uphill holes that are going to challenge players, where they might need to have a little bit of finish to even get it there. And that'd be kind of really boring as players are forced to lay it up real short. But I don't, I don't, I, I trust that our professional um, players will would be able to adapt and get their games to be good enough to make these things happen. Um, but I love the idea of expanding the circle. I really do. I think that that's something that needs to be talked about. The exact number I'm not 100% sure on, and I know that I like 30 meters as a as a kind of, all right, cool, that's a, a number that we could maybe work towards um, for the future where we try out. 20 meters. We try out 15. We try out these things at uh, side events and stuff like that to kind of get feedback to see um, to see what players are how they were able to attack it. Did it change the game enough to make a difference? Um, now, obviously, that also comes down to the course to, d- depends on that because you know some courses it's going to be from 100 feet. It's very easy. To, to stay stand still and get up and down. On other courses, being at 100 feet and not being able to finish forward might be very, very difficult. So yeah. um, 
think they generalize the number at 10 meters because it's, you know, an easy spot. But as our professional sport has grown, that that distance needs to open up for sure. And I know that Sarah Hokum said she doesn't feel like that's a, group, a good spot for the FPO division. Um, but having talked to some of the other ladies um, in the sport, uh, I won't say any names, but they they feel that the distance should you know should be pretty similar to the standard of the men's side. So there's a couple different arguments of where that number would go if it would be the same for the men and the women uh, or not. But I know that there's some good arguments for both sides of that. So I think. I think definitely testing is what we need, and I think it'll totally help trying this out whenever we can. And I know you had mentioned a little bit earlier talking about working with the PDGA and maybe getting some waivers on some stuff to change things uh, for the events. And I think that the professional, the top professional players, the touring guys are 100% on board to helping find a way with 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 your with your guidance and everything just to find a way to expand this to make the professional side of the sport more entertaining better scoring and challenging us as pros um and the green is the great place to start and i think that we're it's a good conversation so uh i'll i'll close and then i'll ask you one final question uh i was listening to uh the upshot uh, not this I guess the most recent episode, because they haven't done the MVP Open recap yet. But I was listening to the option, and uh, and Jamie Thomas argued that um, and the, the three-point line in high school is one distance. In college, it's a farther, and then in pros, it's another distance, even farther out. And And he was using that as an argument to say that baskets for the pros could be smaller, and baskets for the, you know, for the AMs could be bigger. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I, I heard that argument and I thought to myself, that's that's not analogous to changing the size of the basket because they don't change the size of the hoop at different mm-hmm. levels. It's analogous to changing the 10-meter circle mm-hmm. and saying at the at, in, in high school or juniors, it's 10 meters, and in college, it's 15 or 20, and in the pros, it's 20 or 30. And yeah. uh, I heard that. I heard his argument for a smaller basket and I heard an argument for changing our green, and it was uh, it was really interesting, um, and and that that's actually what started my process towards thinking. Wait a minute, I think we might be putting we might be ahead of our skis here. All right, Eric. So at the panel that we had last Wednesday, uh, you were one of the people that was adamantly for changing the baskets to a smaller size. Are you still there? Yes, but with some stipulations. Um, I think we should uh, we should be focusing first on course design, uh, challenging uh, our tee shots and our approaches with uh, moving some baskets or uh, making things more difficult uh, for us, which I think is the first step. And then the second step would be um, ex- uh, expanding the circle uh, out to whatever number gets reached upon in the future to challenge ourselves as players to uh you know be more professional and if those two things aren't 
don't do enough to change the scoring and find out who the best player is on the weekend, then we start having that conversation again about the baskets. But I do think that baskets would help it, but I would like to do the other things first um, before we have um, before we dive into that. Perfect, perfect. And I'm going to presume that putting uh, obstacles on the green is uh, part of course design in that in what you've just stated. Definitely. Uh, not obviously, like I said, not too much, not every single hole. But I think if on specific holes to challenge us, I think would be a great place to start. Awesome. Eric, thank you very much, uh, number one, for coming on and discussing this uh, and, and being such a thoughtful person. Um, but even more so, thank you for saying, you know what, I have an idea, but there's other things that we should do first. Uh, that, In my opinion, that speaks a lot to character when people are willing to listen and say, you know, I've got an idea, but we should try your idea first because uh, it, it might be the solution. I appreciate that, Steve, and I appreciate all you do, man. Thank you, sir, and uh, best of luck, uh, and congratulations to you this next weekend. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Good night. Let's start our conversation on the women's side. Congratulations to Tour Points champion Sarah Holcomb, the little engine that could. The first three events went a little something like this. Paige Pierce wins. Paige Pierce wins. Paige Pierce wins. It felt like the season was a foregone conclusion. And then we take a month break. And we arrive in San Francisco. Not only does Sarah Hokum win, Sarah Hokum crushes the field. Everybody presumes it's a fluke, but there's this little doubt of seeds. Nope, there's this little seed of doubt in our minds that wonder, maybe Paige isn't as dominant as we thought, but this was probably just a fluke. So onward we go. Paige recovers and wins one of the next two events, but Sarah wins the other one. Throughout the home stretch, Sarah would win three of the last five events consistently gaining and gaining and gaining on Paige Pierce. Going into the final event, Sarah Holcomb was behind by 20 points. What this meant was that Sarah Holcomb would have to win the MVP Open and hope that Paige got third or worse. If Sarah got second, Paige could get sixth or worse. Going into the event, Paige Pierce had won this event four times in a row. And now Sarah Holcomb needed to win it and have Paige not get second. A very tall task indeed. Going into the final round, Sarah had set herself up in very good position. She was two strokes ahead of Paige Bjorkis. And after hole six, where Sarah threw an amazing birdie, it was basically over. 
Paige Pierce did not gain ground and ended up in sixth place and ended up losing by over 20 points to Sarah, who is now a two-time Tour Points champion. Congratulations, Sarah Hokum. We look forward to crowning you in Jacksonville in October. Let's go to the men's side of the Tour Points Championship. All you need to say is Paul McBeth. Paul McBeth won more events, won the Tour Points Championship by over 100 points, and had it locked up before the MVP Open even started. Paul made a commitment to the Pro Tour. He won the Tour Points Championship, and everything fell into place. His wins at San Francisco, Idlewild, and Deglo secured him the victory in Tour Points. We look forward to crowning you in October in Jacksonville at the Tour Championship, Paul. And maybe you can also win your second Tour Championship in the season finale. For now, we go to Pro Worlds with Paul McBeth and Sarah Hokum, our Tour Points champions. And to close it all out, our podcast of the week. This week, our podcast of the week is Gold Digger with Jenna Kutcher. In her own words, she describes the podcast this way. How do I build my dream job? How do I make money online? Am I ready to leave my nine to five? How can I create passive income? And the biggest question of all, can I really turn my passion into profits? Welcome to the Gold Digger Podcast with Jenna Kutcher. It is all that and so much more. Not only does she go through and give encouragement, she gives step-by-step. Here's the little steps you can take to improve and to get better and to turn your passion into something that you can genuinely do and make a living at. Thank you, Jenna, for what you give to the world. Keep it up. I hope you all have a fantastic evening. This has been Pro Tour Talk. I'm Steve Dodge. Good night.